Well, the gospel today is pretty um, well known, and actually it's considered very scandalous uh, for some people because it appears that Jesus is acting very harshly with this woman. Um, where he's at, he just came, if, if you read the uh, part in Matthew just before this story, Jesus is in Galilee, but he's having, like usual, in, encounters that get a little confrontational with some of the like Jewish authorities at the time. So he takes a break to go north. And where he's going is basically Gentile land. Uh, but keep in mind, and this explains his, I've come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There, there was a tradition that the ten lost tribes actually scattered uh, when the northern kingdom, just forgive a little bit of the background here real fast. After Solomon died, there was a civil war. And the, the kingdom of Israel split in two. The northern half of the kingdom uh, was called Israel, and the southern half was called Judah. Judah, though, is where the capital was still in Jerusalem. Anyway, uh, in the 8th century uh, before Christ, the, the northern kingdom would be attacked, decimated, and the people carried off, and apparently most of the tribes of Israel, or the descendants of those tribes, would have been scattered uh, after that war. So some scholars think that Jesus is going up there, is looking for basically people who were Israelites who got spread out uh, because of the war uh, and so forth. But it is clearly he's in Gentile land, that's for sure. And while the full force of reaching out to the Gentiles will come after the resurrection, there are times we see Jesus having encounters, but the full force of that outreach will take place after Christ has died and risen from, uh, from death. Anyway, while he's on the road, as we know, um, they suddenly have a woman uh, suddenly following him. And I want to say something about this because she comes from that place in the north. And it's basically the area now of, of Sidon and so forth is in what we call in modern uh, geography Lebanon, this country of Lebanon. So she's a Gentile pretty much. Maybe she's one of the people who's part of the diaspora from 800 years before. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, really, the idea of losing the tribes, they don't know if they'll ever be able to get them back uh, for some who want. But anyway, regardless, she's following Jesus. She sees him walking with his disciples, and she's calling after him. Now, this lady is more likely a Gentile, and, and at least definitely culturally for sure. But she starts shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Now, this says something to me, uh, quite frankly, that this woman didn't just hear that Jesus was a miracle worker and a healer. She f really dug up stuff about not only who he was, but if people were saying he's the Messiah, she obviously did something to find out, because Son of David clearly implies not only the healing tradition that Solomon was supposed to have had a healing gift, and only people within the tradition of Israel would have clearly had a, an understanding of that, but also the fact of it's a phrase referring to the Messianic king. So before this lady comes to find Jesus, she basically digs up whatever she can about him, and then when she hears about the Messianic 
things murmured among many people, she wants to find out what that means. So she doesn't come just that way on her own, just come to a healer, quick fix my daughter. She's actually basically found out, taken the time to find out. And I think that's very important for us to understand that do we dig on our own to find out more about Christ and what it means to be a Christian and what the, the gospel is really about and so on and so forth. Very much a part of all this. Now, she's a parent. She has a daughter. And her daughter is demonized, which we don't know what, how that would have been manifest itself, but it was pretty horrific. But Matthew deliberately calling her Canaanite, and he's the only one that does this, Luke and Mark call her Syrophoenician, which today we'd say, oh, kind of a Greek-Lebanese person, uh, and so forth. Of course, they were all intermixed back then. So, Anyway, but um, Canaanite is to harken back to the history of when the Israelites first went into the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. There were a lot of these different religions, pagan religions, religions that even included things like human sacrifice. Um, Jezebel, who uh, married the king of the kingdom of Israel to the north, Ahab, was a priest, priestess in the religion of the Baal, and so forth. Tried to kill the prophet Elijah, and so on and so forth. So the Canaanite religion was not one that was very positive in that way. It was a, uh, these religions were fertility religions. And the way you got the gods to respond was by offering some kind of blood sacrifice. Whether it meant, and we know this from the story in the Book of Kings, whether it meant you mutilated yourself or offered sacrifice of sometimes even sadly a baby uh, and so forth. Uh, it was a pretty intense religion. And I, the point that Matthew's making is this woman comes from a spiritual background that is pretty spiritually twisted. And so it's just like uh, people who mess around with the occult and Satanism and all these kinds of things. There are spiritual realities in these things. They are not neutral. They are not neutral. And the thing that opens us up to the devil, though, is, is not just occult kind of practices. You know, uh, we have different cultures have different versions of this, whether it be the Church of Satan, whether it be uh, the pagan, the pagan religion, as it's called now, or uh, if you're Latino in Santoria and all kinds of things like that. All those practices open up doors spiritually to another dimension that may not be very good. But also sin can do that. Just sin. Uh, you know, what makes us just so obsessive over whatever uh, type of thing? Whether it be lust, whether it be addictions, whether it be rage, uh, and what have you, all those things that open up the door, open up the door to demonic activity and spiritual, spiritual war. And what happens in the end, it's like an addiction where we feel like there's no other alternative but to act out in this way, just like an alcoholic or an, an addict of any kind. So she's coming yelling, heal my daughter. Now, any of us that are parents can have a feel for this. If our children are in dire straits, we will plead. And actually in Greek, it's the idea that she repeatedly, Lord, help my daughter, help my daughter, help my daughter. Okay, and she, they're walking down the road. But he doesn't answer her. Now, that seems pretty cold, right? 
seems pretty cold. And the, the disciples urge him and they say, send her away. Actually, in Greek, it could also be not only send her away, but also to mean, look, just give her what she wants so she can get out of our hair. <laughs> She's driving us crazy. <laughs> okay? But I think there's something about all this, too, in, in the world where religion, people think they're entitled to this and that, that they come to a church and demand whatever, sacraments, things, without like proper prep, without finding out what the responsibilities are to be part of those things. Right? Um, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Allentown on the average, every Pascha admits 1,500, just the diocese now, 1,500 new members to the Catholic Church. Now, I'm not saying they don't lose people, but there's one thing you've got to understand because in the Greek archdiocese, we might get 1,500 people in the whole of the United States in one year. Okay? Now, one of the things they do, though, they're very serious about making commitment and doesn't guarantee that people will always follow through. But if you want to get married, if you want to have your child baptized or whatever, you have to be coming to church and they have to see you every Sunday, A. And B, you have to go to classes that really, really hit you with what are the responsibilities you need to take in order to participate in this way. Through this in the sacraments. And it's months. It's not just a weekend or two or whatever. And I say that because on the side here, without getting into it, we have a problem in the Orthodox Church where we just you know, don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Oh, they'll, they'll never come back. Though we, f- we find now you, you do these things, you baptize their kid, and then they disappear and you never see them again. They get married and you never see them again. And it's actually intensified. So doing whatever they ask doesn't, doesn't guarantee... Now, Making them prep ahead of time doesn't guarantee they'll stay there, but the odds are usually a little better, right? And I've never heard a Catholic person complain about that. They may complain about what's going on, the mess with the priests, or they disagree with the Pope or some other cardinal or whatever. Okay. But I've never heard anybody say, I quit the Catholic Church because they required that I come months ahead of time, be in church, etc. In other words, to prep, to really know what you're what you're asking, to have understanding, to be mature and responsible as an adult. And, I, and just as a quick little footnote, I mean, we still have people that don't get it, even very educated people. Uh, some people I know, the, the, you know, they're the parents, the, the, the dad's a physician, the mom, you know, she had a high-powered job in the business world. Uh, one of their kids who was living with somebody, had a child, and they wanted to get their baby baptized, which is already, okay, well, what are you going to do with your relationship? But who's going to be sponsoring the child? They have to be responsible members of the church because if you can't, you know, raise it, we'll find somebody that at least can speak on behalf of the church and reflect the church. So the couple that was brought, okay, now you have to understand that this quote-unquote doctor and his wife, uh, they were raised in the church, they go to church regularly. But you've suddenly found out that the prospective godparents are total atheists. And the poor priest is going, no. How the heck can somebody 
who is A, of course, if you're not Orthodox, how can you support the child to become Orthodox? But B, if you really don't believe this stuff, it's, this is ludicrous. So, thank God. I mean, the, the priest put, you know, and, and so forth. But then, you know, what happens is somebody will find some good old boy retired priest somewhere who just, oh, yeah, whatever, and do this and that and the other thing. And that's one of the problems we have in the church right now. There's not a, if you will, a common approach to these kinds of issues, you know. And we lost some people from St. Matthew's years ago because I was saying, well, before you can participate in this, etc. But anyway, that's a side note, so forgive the rabbit trail. Anyway, you know, he, she comes and kneels before him, and I can almost envision when he, she, she hears the disciples say, get rid of, get rid of her, just give her whatever, just, just get her out of here. She runs in front of him and kneels in front of him, okay? And she says, Lord, help me, help me. Can you imagine? I mean, the, the, the intensity of a mother now crying for her child. And he answers, <laughs> talk about losing people from your membership. It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it, up to, throw it to the dogs. Now, we have to understand that in the ancient world, most cultures did not see dogs as domestic pets. Dogs were scavengers. Dogs ate dead carcasses, even, even if a human was not buried, the dogs would, would take the corpse and eat, you know, chew it all up and everything else. And that's why even the, the idea of Gentiles are, have the same root word as, as dog in Hebrew in that way. Because, like in the epistle today, dogs are unclean, Gentiles are unclean. They're not pure, etc., etc., etc. But she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, if I heard that, and I have to admit to myself, if I, somebody said that to me, I would say, that's it. And mind you, this is, this is God in the flesh talking. But there's something very potent here that's going on because there is, in the history of, in, within Scripture, people who were persistently after God with their requests, banging on the door, even, quote-unquote, when God said he was going to do this, trying to convince him, quote-unquote, to do otherwise. Moses going up to Sinai after the uh, golden calf incident. God says, Moses, get out of the way. I'm fed up with these people. I'm going to destroy all of them. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses goes, God, you can't do that. Even later in the book of Numbers, same kind of thing happens where they're being a pain. God says, I think I've had it with these people. And Moses argues with God and says, you can't do that. What will, what, will be, what will the nation say? What will the Egyptians say? That you got them out of Egypt just to you know, destroy all of them? And Jesus talks about persistence in prayer where he says about the widow who did not get a good ruling and she goes to the judge's house and she's yelling constantly to plead her case. And finally, the judge says, okay, okay. My point is, are we persistent in prayer? And it's not because we change God's mind, but God wants us, it seems that he wants us to engage with him. He wants us to engage with him.
there, there was an account that I read of, and it, this is documented. Um, kid had fallen into a river. They thought he drowned. They brought him to the ER. They tried to bring him back. They couldn't bring him back. And the mother went crazy. And she's yelling there in the ER. God, you can't let this happen. Now, she was, a, she was a, also a very real Christian woman. You can't let this happen. You've got to send the Holy Spirit and bring my child. And she's crying. I'm, I'm not even doing justice to how in, intense and dramatic this was. And as she's yelling and crying, and the people are like, I mean, there's a sheet over his head in the whole nine yards. Suddenly, because they hadn't taken off all the monitors, beep, 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 beep. Now, that doesn't mean magically it'll happen every time like that, but there's something about, are there times we don't keep banging at the door of God's kingdom? for something that would be consistent with his will. Okay. Though sometimes God might give us what we ask for and it won't be good, but because we keep, <laughs> you know, be careful what we ask for. But there are good things to ask for. And there's something about God wanting us to engage with him. Like Moses did, and so on and so forth. Because the point in the end is God wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants us to become like him. I mean, Jesus always did things that, quote-unquote, I see the Father doing. Were there times he thought in his humanity, like when, when Joseph, the, the tradition is Joseph got old and died, that probably Jesus wished maybe he could have done something to keep his father alive longer, his, his earthly father. We don't know, but that's possible because he had a full human nature as well as the divine nature, always in harmony with the divine will. But I'm not talking about some indiscriminate yelling and screaming. I'm talking about really engaging with God, really engaging with God. And we have to have the attitude of humility. I think that's one of the key things. This woman is really willing to be called a dog. I mean, it kind of blows me away. It blows me away. You're right. You're right. My religion that I came from really screwed things up. I screwed up. Yes. Yes. I played with other gods and probably opened the door for my poor daughter to get hit with demons. Yes. But you know what? I'll even take the crumbs that fall from the table. So unless there's humility... And see, Moses is actually considered one of the most humble people in, in the tradition of, of Israel. God doesn't take anything if there's not humility involved before him. And sometimes he lets things humble us to say, you know what? We try to do this ourselves. And that's why I put that quote of, from C.S. Lewis that he prays out of need. He, he, it's not because he's such a great gifted person of prayer, it's, he suddenly re he's so desperate. He needs God. And we have to live as if we need God. And we have to arrange our lives as if we need God. Our lifestyles, do our lifestyles, our attitudes reflect that we live in need, constant need of God and in constant need of his mercy. And the people that are like that, they're more at peace. They're more, 
They're not sitting there begrudging everyone and everything. They're not, you know, complaining night and day about everything. This woman gets healing for her daughter because she'll be humble. And humble doesn't mean self-deprecating. Humble means, I'm here, Lord. I'm here. And I put my trust in you that no matter what happens, I believe you're good and you care about more the person I pray for than I do. So may the Lord bless us with that attitude, both personally as a church. And as long as we're all willing to, to do his will and be his presence on earth, I think that's, that's a key to understanding that that's the goal, is to become Jesus, no matter how the prayer gets answered and so forth. How do we become Jesus and let ourselves be humbled? Because the only way we can begin to become Jesus is not with pride, but with humility.